Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. In this episode, we bring you a phone call hosted by Goldman Sachs Chairman and CEO David Solomon. David talks with United States Senators Marco Rubio of Florida and Ben Cardin of Maryland, who are the Chairman and Ranking Member of the Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship. They discuss the federal policy response to the coronavirus pandemic and how the recently passed Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act impacts small businesses. This call was recorded on March 30th, 2020. Solomon, the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs. I want to thank the 10,000 small business community for joining us this morning. I'm happy to host and moderate today's conversation with Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin. Our goal today is to highlight the financial assistance that's being made available to you and your employees across the country in response to COVID-19. First, I want to thank Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin for championing small business in this historic Senate bill and ensuring their needs were thoroughly considered and represented. When Goldman Sachs launched 10,000 Small Businesses, we were guided by a single concept. We knew small businesses were the catalyst of economic growth and job creation in the United States, and their health is critical to the health of our economy. Small businesses employ nearly half of the American workforce and are the bedrock of our communities, but this foundation is at risk. For most of you, the past two weeks have been the most difficult weeks of your business career. All of you have reevaluated your business plans. Many of you have temporarily closed your businesses. Some of you have been forced to lay off employees. Incredibly hard decisions you did not fathom making late last month. Just two weeks ago, we reached out with a survey to better understand your needs. And within 24 hours, 1,500 of you responded. We found that 96% of you have already been impacted by COVID-19, and a sobering 51% stated you will only be able to continue to operate for zero to three months under the current conditions. This number rose to 83% when looking into a six-month horizon. It is clear that in this time of unprecedented uncertainty, small businesses need support to weather this crisis. We also found that 75% of you feel that you have little or no voice in the policymaking process. So I'm distinctly honored to host this forum for you to connect with policymakers like Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin. Senators Rubio and Cardin are the chairman and ranking member, respectively, of the Senate Small Business Committee and were instrumental in writing the small business section of the CARES Act. They're going to give you an overview of the small business relief measures and will then take some of your questions. Senators Rubio and Cardin, our 10,000 small businesses community includes small business owners from all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. On average, 10,000 small business alumni have 10 employees and revenues of around $724,000. 44% are family-owned, and the age of the businesses ranges between 2 and 164 years old. I want to add that this is a growth-oriented group of businesses who join 10,000 small businesses to create jobs and strengthen their businesses. So Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin, the floor is now yours. 
Well, let me, I'll start off, I guess. It's Marco Rubio. David, thank you for, for doing this. Thank you all that are on this call. Uh, and you'll hear from Senator Cardin in a second, who's been instrumental in all this. You know, him and I have an excellent working relationship that crosses from foreign relations where we serve together to the small business sector where he's the, um, uh, he's the ranking Democrat, he's the Democratic leader, you know, the ranking member on the committee that I, that I chair. And we started thinking about this over six weeks ago because we saw something coming. And I'm glad we did, obviously, because uh, now we know what we face. And I think this call takes heightened importance after the announcement yesterday that uh, we're going to be facing some of these circumstances at least until the 30th of April. So what I want to focus on and, and then you know, let Senator Cardin sort of uh, add his, uh, his perspective on it is two things. The first is who qualifies and what do they qualify for? And then the second is how important it is we get lenders to participate. Who qualifies is, is any small business in America and any, in any sector um, that either meets the SBA criteria for small business or has 500 employees or less. And, um, as, and this also includes 501c3s with 500 employees or less. And for the first time ever, it also includes 1099 workers or people in the gig economy and so forth. What they qualify for is to go to a lender and uh, prove payroll and receive 250% of their payroll on a lump sum payment. And if they use that money um, a year from now when they come back and they show how they spent it, if they use that money to, to payroll, benefits, rent, or lease on their business property and or utilities or expenses such as this, that they will not have to pay that back. And the goal is to keep as many people as possible connected to their employer. And on the lender side, it's really important that they participate. This program works simply because it's built on the infrastructure of an existing pool of over 800 lenders who are currently 7A lenders. And I say lenders, this is not a loan, obviously. It doesn't have to be a loan if you, don't, if you use the money a certain way. But we're using banks and other institutions to put, process the paper. There's no reason for them not to. They'll be paid a fee for processing the paper. There's no underwriting. There's a 100% guarantee. There's a guaranteed buyer for this loan or, or, or grant. And, um, and, uh, and, and the only thing they have to do is, is prove that it's a real business, uh, through an EIN and so forth, that was in operation at least as of February, and uh, prove their payroll. And so we've got to get uh, more. We've got to get not only the 800 who are already authorized to start, because they're already 7 eight preferred lenders, but we have to get more lenders into the pipeline providing the service. And I know Treasury and SBA are going to be writing some rules in the days to come that will further refine and define who qualifies, but also provides a pathway for, for new uh, lenders, banks, and others to become a part of this process. Yeah, this is Ben Carton. Uh, first, I want to thank Goldman Sachs for not only arranging this call, but what you're doing for small businesses. I know in Baltimore you've been a key partner, and we thank you very much for helping our small business community. I think first and foremost, we all want to get beyond this COVID-19 to get our economy back on track. We've got to make sure we're all healthy. And the, the primary focus has been to have all the resources uh, put to dealing with this horrible disease and to get it over as quickly as we possibly can so we get our economy back on track. And if you take a look at the bill we passed, you'll see that there's major attention to, the, to health needs to get us back on track. I, I want to thank Senator Rubio for the manner in which he has acted as chairman of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee in the United States Senate 
as he pointed out, well before this a third stimulus package was put together, the small business provisions had already been thought out. The two of us have worked in a nonpartisan manner in order to see what we could do to help small businesses. So as they started to negotiate this package, we were almost at the finish line as they were just getting started. So it gave us a real chance to make sure that our provisions were articulated and legislated well in this package. And in fact, that's exactly what did happen. Uh, Senator Rubio uh, talked about the principal new program, which basically provides eight weeks of operations of a small business uh, at paid for by the federal government because of these extraordinary circumstances. And it's very likely if it goes beyond the eight weeks, there's greater need. We're going to be back dealing with another bill, and it's possible that these programs can be extended if the need is still there. It's something we will evaluate uh, on literally a day-to-day basis. But there are basically four new programs available for small businesses. Some of them can work together. Some cannot, so it gets a little bit complicated. But uh, the, the, the largest dollar program is the eight weeks of, of basically uh, loan forgiveness uh, for uh, payroll and other expenses. We also have, for the first time, under the IDLE program, the emergency grant program by SBA, the ability of SBA to give out a cash grant to those who apply who have desperate need. This could be up to $10,000. It's a grant. It does not have to be repaid. It's, it's given as a grant, so there's no effort here to say that this has to be repaid. It would be subtracted from your forgiveness under the first program that Senator Rubio uh, talked about, but it gives you cash, and we are trying to get that out within three days. So this is to deal with those urgent situations where you have expenses that you cannot pay because of the coronavirus. The third new program that's out here is a loan forgiveness program uh, on existing 7A and 504 loans, and those are taken out within the next six months. Uh, There is a a, a six-month window of forgiveness of of payments under those loans. Uh, That can be done in conjunction with either of the other two programs. And then the fourth program I just want to mention briefly is, is under the IRS, a retention credit. Uh, for uh, keeping your payroll. It is, uh, there are different rules for those companies under 100 and those over 100. Those over 100 can only do that for uh, individuals who basically jobs have been um, lost as a result of the coronavirus. For under 100, it can be all of your employees. You've had to have a 50% reduction in your revenues in order to qualify for this program. And if you qualify for this program, uh, you cannot do this and do also uh, the loan forgiveness program. So you, you need to decide uh, that credit's 50% up to $10,000 of payroll, so it's basically a $5,000 maximum credit. So uh, that's just a, a, a broad overview, and we look forward to, uh, to this discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. So now we're going to turn it over to questions. We've received over 800 questions from small business owners all of which we're sharing with the senators so they can benefit from this group's feedback. A number of the questions focused on payment protection program in terms of eligibility, access, timeline for implementation, and how the new program interacts with other components of the bill. I'm going to start um, with a uh, question from, uh, from Natalie, who owns a small business in Florida. So this is from Natalie in Miami, Florida. 
uh, Senators, what are the criteria for applying for a loan, and are all the community banks able to extend the loan or only specific lenders? Well, let, let me take that one, Natalie, and say that um, a couple things. The first, the criteria is, as I've outlined, either you meet the SBA criteria, which is online, and, and it's a combination of either the size of your company or depending on the kind of line your work you're in, it might be based on the revenue uh, of the company. And it, it's, it, that, that's a code that's already in, in the regulatory code, and it defines it that way, or 500 employees or less. So it's one or the other, uh, whichever one suits you the best. The second is um, the question about where are all the lenders. So the way I could, we, we can't make any lender become a facilitator of this. What we can tell you is that every lender that participates currently in the 7A program, and that's over 800 lenders, including all the major banks in the country and all of their branches, all of them are under the law authorized to begin doing that immediately. They could do it today, frankly. Um, the, the, the law authorizes that um, for them to begin. And these are preferred lenders. These are people that can now do 7A loans um, without uh, actually even the work, checking or getting the permission of the SBA because they, they do a certain number a year. In addition to that, um, we are trying to bring in more lenders to participate, and that's why Treasury has been given broad rulemaking authority to create the pathway for that to happen. And um, and so the hope is that by the end of this week, those rules will be out and even additional lenders will have been attracted to it. So so I think one of the, the challenges that we have now is sort of making it widely known, you know, there's a, who, who's eligible to do it. Um, but from the banking perspective, we're also going to need them to step forward and, and actively market, it, you know, notify their clients. And I, in an ideal world, you would have the banks um, – reaching out to their customers or putting it on their website and, and being proactive with their business accounts, letting them know that they are, that they are able to offer and extend the service. But I anticipate that when all is said and done, it will be difficult to find a midsize or large bank anywhere that doesn't have the ability to do this if they choose to do so. Okay. I just that, add one. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. One, I'm sorry. Just, just one thing if I could, and that is we have provided extra incentives for those loans up to $350,000. We do that because we want these lenders to lend to all small businesses, including those that are relatively small versus the others. So we've put provisions in here to make it easier for banks to participate in all types of loans. Terrific. The, um, the next question uh, comes from Diane, who owns a small business in Sugarland, Texas. How are businesses being filtered with regards to qualifying for emergency grants and forgivable loans? Why don't I start on that one, Marco, and we'll sort of rotate yep. back and forth. Uh, yep. First of all, let me point out that if it is this loan forgiveness program, it's going to be through the existing financial institutions. That's where these loans are originate from. They're 100% guaranteed by the federal government. And there's no cost to the borrower. So there's really virtually no – there's no risk factor to the lender. Uh, but it, it's through the banks, and they're set uh, standards, but they're pretty streamlined. You've got to establish your payroll. Uh, most of this is self-certification. So it's a pretty streamlined process in order to be able to make it. The normal credit rules have been relaxed dramatically so that you will be able to achieve – 
alone, recognizing that under the COVID-19, your revenues are shot in many cases. We recognize that. We want the banks to still be able to make the loans. In regards to the idle program, the emergency uh, loans and grants, that's done by the SBA, and we expect that they're going to be issuing guidelines by this week. The uh, Secretary of Treasury indicated they want to get these loans out by the end of the week, started the process started by the end of the week. Uh, we see three days for grants, so it's going to be determined by uh, the SBA, and I would urge you, and again, it's a streamlined process, an easy process to, to fill out. Most of it's self-certification, uh, and, and it, so we, we want to get this money out to save these businesses. Okay. Um, the, next, uh, the next question, Senators, comes from Brian, who is the president of a small business in Cleveland, Ohio. The question is, what is the anticipated time for turnaround from application to the approval of the disbursement? Well, that's a great question. And obviously, a lot of that will depend on the workforce availability and the process is set up by the individual banks or lenders. But there really, there is no governmental reason why there should be a delay involved. In essence, if you want to walk through it in a, in a sort of typical scenario, you're going to have to provide an employer identification number and proof of payroll. And I've encouraged people, as I said, to go to their existing institutions that, where, where they do their operating accounts from because they're going to have instant insight into your payroll. And obviously, they, they already have all the verification on who you are as a business when they open the account. And so ideally, in a situation just such as that, I can't imagine that a process that doesn't involve a credit check, a guarantee, or underwriting would take an extensive period of time. I mean, I think that would be pretty quick. And so the way it would work in a perfect world, and I'm not saying this will apply to everybody, but in a perfect world is you're a small business and you bank somewhere, and that's where you have your operating account. And they know you. They've got all the information about you already because they've already had to verify your existence as a corporate entity for purposes of opening that account. And all they have to do is look in the account, and they will see the payroll, the in and out, uh, very quickly. And they would be able to direct deposit the funds that you're eligible for into your account. A process like that, I can't imagine taking more than a 36 hours, 24 hours, whatever it might be. Obviously, this program has never existed before, so there might be some unforeseen impediments that I'm not aware of and we're not aware of right now. But it, it was designed deliberately to be quick and simple, understanding that, that most small businesses – don't have a human resource office or a, you know, a CEO that's in charge of all of this. It's, it's in many cases these are really small firms that are doing it all themselves. Okay. The um the next question comes from Katie, who owns a small business in Greenland, New Hampshire. The question is, with all the help available, how can we know which is the best way to go without disqualifying ourselves from additional help? For example, if we follow the Families First Act. Are we still eligible for disaster loan relief and or the pay the payback protection program? How do these programs work in conjunction with one another? That uh, that's a great question, and what I would encourage you to do is these programs are coordinated, and some you cannot get uh, dual benefits if you're getting help under paid leave. Uh, there's a credit under that. It it, it does affect your benefits under the other programs. You can't use the same money to pay for the same expenses twice. I would urge you to go to the small business development centers and the women business centers, all of which have gotten extra support under uh, this bill that just passed, 
uh, and they're developing online platforms that consolidate information about small businesses assistance across all federal agencies. So they're, they're looking at coordinating the answer to that question. I would also encourage you, I know that uh, Senator Rubio and I have put out information, uh, including we put out a, a business owner's guide uh, to the small business provisions that talk about the different provisions and how they are integrated and how you have to decide whether you want to go one route or the other in some of these cases. So there, uh, last thing I would say is the Small Business Administration's website also provides very useful information. All of the loans we're talking about, we expect the work to be done online. In fact, on the IELTS grants, that's how the applications are made, online. So a lot of the information is online available to you, but I would urge you to use the resource partners uh, that we have provided additional resources in order to help you. Okay, and this, uh, this next question follows on in a similar way. This is from Mark, who's the president of a small business in Long Island City, New York. Can I do both an IDLE 7B loan program and a Paycheck Protection Program 7A as long as I do not use the funds for the same purpose? Well, I think that's a great question. I don't. So the way to think those are those are so a loan. The the existing IDLE loans are a loan instrument, and I don't think holding a loan or accessing a loan disqualifies you from the Paycheck Protection Program. What uh, the difference, of course, is the Paycheck Protection funds are. Uh, 100% forgivable, uh, whereas the loans are a standard loan process. They're, they're emergency loans, so they move quicker, uh, on average about 36 hours in the case of, of the idle loans. But um, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, the, the one area that Senator Cardin alluded to is there are some firms who, through the first uh, COVID-19 or second COVID-19 bill that was passed, uh, are, are eligible for a tax credit for paid leave. And what those who use that tax credit to pay paid leave, that amount will be deducted from your forgivable amount in the Paycheck Protection uh, Program, uh, meaning you, know, you, you can't use the credit to make payroll for that period of time and then also uh, get the, the monies. But, but that said, by and large, all of these, with the exception of that really that comes to mind, uh, none participation in any SBA or, or other lending instrument does not disqualify you from this program. But remember, at the end of it, a year from now, when the time comes to sort of close the books on it, one of two things are going to happen. You'll either be able to show that the, that you spent a commensurate amount, so you took out $20,000 and you spent 20000 on payroll and, and eligible expenses that we've outlined earlier, that will be your forgivable amount. If, if, if you spent it on – if you didn't spend that amount or up to that amount, then you're going to owe – it will convert into a loan at a low interest rate, but it will convert into a loan. So that's the piece to really keep an eye on. Our goal here, though, was to incentivize um, and, and, and in no way disincentivize using these funds to meet payroll, whether your employees are working or not. Uh, we don't want them to wander away because it's going to be hard to restart if you lose your workforce or a percentage of your workforce. Senator Cardin, do you have anything to add on this this particular point? No, I think Senator Rubio Rubio covered it well. You, you can't use federal funds to pay the same expenses twice. You have to be able to use your loan amounts uh, for the approved expenses. And you can have a loan and you can have a paycheck protection also, but they, they have to be for separate expenses. Yeah, right. 
Okay, the, uh, the next question from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Coley, who owns a small business in Baltimore, what is the difference between state and federal aid, and can we apply for both? Well, since the person's from Baltimore, I think I'll, I'll jump in here first. Uh, Governor Hogan, Hogan and the Maryland General Assembly have been really active in trying to help Maryland businesses, and we applaud their efforts. Uh, others governors and other states are doing likewise. These are state programs configured as what is best for the state. Uh, the Maryland program, if I understand it correctly, is limited to small businesses of 50 workers or fewer. And it is, uh, there, it's a different program than what we have set up under the federal program. So there is no restrictions on participating in both the uh, state program and in the federal program. You can do both. There's no restrictions at the federal level for participating in the state program. You, you should check the state rules. They may modify their program to be consistent with what we're doing here in Washington. But let me again point out, you've you got to use the funds we're talking about, for uh, particularly on the, on the paycheck protection. The money needs to be spent on payroll or other approved expenses in order to be get, able to get the forgiveness. So if that is being covered under a different program, it could affect your ability to get a loan forgiveness. So there's no restrictions at the federal level. You can do both, um, uh, but I would make sure that it's not being used for the same expenses. Okay. The, uh, the next question is from Peter, who's a principal in a small business in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he's asking, is Congress prepared to act again if this crisis extends past 60 to 90 days? Well, that's an excellent question. And because the, So the way this was designed, and I think Senator Cardin would echo this, is we felt that if we could create the structure, the mechanism to deliver uh, the, this assistance to small business and the structure works, in essence relying heavily on the private sector as the delivery mechanism, then really uh, a future endeavor would simply require us providing additional funds to the program because we need to do it for another, another you know 10-week period, another 250% or another 150%. So we've got to make this program work because if it works and it becomes a success, then really all you need to do as a congressional body is be able to come back and, and address it uh, by when, when the funds are exhausted, being able to replenish that fund. Uh, obviously, we're all hopeful, including the businesses, that it doesn't come to that. The question about Congress is I think Congress, there's a wide recognition that there will be additional legislation, be it to backfill the programs that have already been put in place and or – things we're going to need to do for recovery. The, we view the measures that were passed last week as emergency funding to get us through the crisis. But afterwards, there's going to have to be expenditure of funds and additional things that will have to be done for recovery. We won't be able to get to the recovery phase of it until we know the extent of the damage. But, um, but most certainly, I think everyone anticipates that we are not done with legislating. There is the, the practical implication of bringing Congress back together. You saw the House struggled with that the other day. And, uh, and the Senate theoretically would as well. Um, but, again, if these programs are working well, we do have within our rules the ability to appropriate additional funding and get that passed without a roll call vote um, if, if we needed to do it that way. Um, you know, we'll, we've got to make this work first before we cross that bridge. But, uh, but I think we all anticipate that more is going to happen. We're not done and, and with regards to, to this matter. Okay. Um, the next question comes from uh, Nurhan, who owns a small business in New Orleans, um, and he's asking, do you see small businesses 
having a greater role or a changing role in the post-COVID-19 economy? Well, I think the answer to that is absolutely. First and foremost, we want to make sure that we do everything on the public health front. And I think small business owners can help us in what needs to be done in their businesses so that we can deal with the requirements of public health as we try to recover. Secondly, we want to keep people working. Where I, where I find small business has a unique problem, it's difficult to reconstruct your workforce. So if you lay off workers or furlough workers, and yes, they'll get unemployment insurance, and we have strengthened unemployment insurance pretty dramatically in this bill. There's no question about that, and we'll continue to do that. But for small companies, it's difficult to get back a workforce you need when the economy responds. So we would rather see people with paychecks. So what we need to find out from you as this crisis gets resolved is whether the tools that have been available does it keep our small business workforce intact so that our economy can respond faster once the crisis is over? Were these tools the right tools in order to answer this challenge? Because that's our objective. What Senator Rubio and I are trying to do is keep small businesses viable so that you don't have to reinvent your company after this crisis is over and try to find the workers you need in order to do the work. And we hope that that's what's achieved, and we certainly look forward to your input on that. It's different than larger companies. Larger companies have much higher turnover. They have easier time getting uh, workers than small companies do. So I think that's an area where we can really help uh, getting input from small businesses. If I could uh, briefly add it to Marco Rubio, that um, sure. uh, on that on this point, um, I don't think it is. Po- if you look at the history of mankind, it has never gone through sort of a disruptive global event like this without there being changes to the infrastructure of geopolitics, domestic politics, and economics. And this will be no different. I, I don't know exactly what those changes are going to be. No one does yet. We have to get through this first. But one thing that's been pretty apparent is I can tell you in Florida, and I I anticipate it's probably the case in Maryland as well, our acute crisis right now is not the test kits per se. It is, at least in Florida, it is the actual nasal swabs that you need to conduct these tests. And it is those nasal swabs are largely a long, thin wooden stick with cotton a cotton swab at the end of it in a in a sealed uh, uh, sterile packaging, and the inability to produce sufficient quantities of it uh, domestically in combination with uh, international competition at an epic level has really been an eye opener, right? And so, if I were to expect at least one change, is I think nations all across the world are going to revisit their supply chains and argue expand their view of, of what is critical. Uh, for a country to be able to produce. And I imagine governments are going to respond by creating incentives to ensure that um, even if it may not be the most efficient uh, investment from a pure free enterprise perspective, there are certain things countries have to be able to make domestically in a moment of crisis, be it a healthcare crisis or a, uh, a military one. And, um, and I do think small business can have a role to play, a big role to play in that regard. That's correct. Um, Next question comes from Corey, who's the CEO of a small business in Fort Pierce, Florida. What is the most important feedback that you both could provide to small business owners during this time? 
Well, I think the most important feedback we can provide is that, you know, we all talk about the economy after this is over. You have to have an economy in order to have economic recovery. And I think what's been a real eye-opener to a lot of people is what, how, you know, we all say it, it becomes cliche-ish, right, Corey, that, that, that the small business is the backbone of America's economy. It's now being laid bare for all to see. Uh, people are now seeing exactly how important it is as a source of employment, but also as a source of everyday activity. Look, I don't mean this to be trivial about it or, or, or to be funny, but you can't cut your hair right now in most places in this country. And and I'm going to tell you, that's gonna, in, in, in a, probably not in a way that we – certainly not at the level that we're dealing with in the medical profession, but, um, you know, for some people, that's going to become a crisis here pretty soon in the next couple of weeks in terms of, of – things of that nature. And, um, and so just the, and then the contagion that it involves, I mean, small businesses, many will not be able to make their payments this month on the lease or rent, uh, wherever it is they're located. So now you've got landowners or real estate uh, uh, enterprises that are going to be impacted by all of this. So I think the most important feedback we can give is I think there's, there's, it's not a coincidence that um, this was the most popular and most broadly supported provision in the bill because there is not a senator or member of Congress or governor or president or member of the cabinet who does not have extensive personal links to small business, whether it is they know the owners or they frequent the facility. And, um, and I, and I think for us, it, it is why um, it, we obviously didn't want to go through this, but if, if ever something opened the eyes of the nation to how important small business is, the well-being of our country uh, this event has and, and that's why i think you see such a concerted effort to ensure that that it can survive if i could add to that uh i agree with senator rubio what what i hope that we can get feedback from the small business community is whether our effort to keep your workers on the payroll has worked as i said in the last question we have unemployment insurance. It's a very important program. We've expanded unemployment insurance. But it seems to me it's better for small businesses to keep your payroll going rather than putting your people on unemployment insurance. And we'd like to get that feedback as to whether this made more sense, what we tried to do through these loan forgivenesses and grants, rather than having your workers uh, on unemployment insurance. Secondly, we want to know where there are problems in what we've done, where there have been abuses that we should have, uh, we should deal with, where there have been uh, scam artists that have been out there trying to take advantage of this situation. Unfortunately, it always happens. We've already seen, I understand, one fake site that came up on one of these programs. So you can help us by identifying those who are really trying to abuse these tools that we put out there in order to help small businesses. So your, your uh, input, uh, your views are going to be very, very important to us as we go through this. Appreciate that. Um, I had senators, if it's okay, I had one item I wanted to touch on before we close, and that's the cash payment program um, of up to $1,200 for individuals, $2,400 for married couples, and $500 for children under, under 17. I know a lot of small businesses and their employees will benefit from this help. Can you just explain how it works and who qualifies? I'll be glad to take that if you want me to. The $1,200 goes to every taxpayer. So every taxpayer will get the $1,200. Those who filed their tax returns last year, uh, based upon their income, 
uh, will be eligible. It's up to seventy-five thousand uh, per individual, uh, one hundred and fifty thousand uh, per couple. Uh, there's a sliding scale, which uh, you, you can still get some of that amount up to uh, close to $100,000, a little less than $100,000 of taxable income for an individual. Uh, it will be, if you set up arrangements with the IRS for electronic transfer, it will be sent to you automatically. You don't have to do anything at all. Otherwise, it will be done by check, which will take a longer period of time for you to receive. If you are receiving Social Security, you will also be eligible for this, and how you receive your Social Security checks is how you will receive your uh, $1,200 payment. There's an extra $500 per child. Uh, if uh, there, are, there are some who are eligible that have not filed tax returns, those who are, I think, on disability uh, that are not receiving, uh, then you might have to file a tax return from, in order to be able to get your $1,200. But for most, uh, if they are uh, taxpayers, they filed a tax return last year, or the Social Security recipients, uh, it should be automatic. Okay. Well, we appreciate yeah, that. that. Go ahead. That, that's a, uh, I would just I would point to one thing. The Washington Post, among others, have posted as calculators online to help people sort of determine uh, what they qualify for. Um, I, I messed around with it briefly the other night and concluded, just looking at it, that um, I think you completely phase out at about $230,000 um, a married couple. Again, that's just based on that calculator, but uh, but it starts phasing out at 150 filing jointly and 75. And and the one point, just because we've been talking about taxes in the IRS, that that was an important provision, is that uh, this grant amount that that is going to be received by small businesses will not be taxable. In essence, it will not be treated as a taxable loan forgiveness that that uh, that you now will owe money on. So I, I, I neglected to make that point earlier, but it's one that people have asked me about as they get deeper into this. That's a very important point. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I, mean, I should correct. I, I need to correct my number. Uh, Marco is, is absolutely correct. It's close to uh, 200000 for a married couple that it phases out. For an individual, it would be uh, less than that. Make sure we have the right numbers. Thank you. So just to just to close, and first um, I want to I want to start by thanking the nearly 1,500 small businesses from around the country that joined the call today, um, and I'm sure all of them would like to extend with me a great thanks to both of you, Senator Rubio and Senator Cardin, for joining us and taking uh, taking questions and making comments. I want to encourage the 10,000 small businesses community to routinely visit the 10,000 Small Business app and our new Small Business Resource Center, which is a web page that's hosted on gs.com that we'll be updating frequently with advice and resources we think will be useful to you. We're also hosting more calls and webinars with subject matters and experts that can help you navigate these new benefits um, for you and for your employees. So again, a big thank you to the senators. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope everyone stays safe and healthy. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded on March 30th, 2020. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, 
as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.